Well, we're going to continue our study on the second book of Peter today. And uh, the title that I put on today's message is The Certainty of God's Truth. The Certainty of God's Truth. Um, for those that are new to this study, we are in the second Peter. This is our fourth sermon, I guess, a fourth message uh, of, the, of Peter's um, last message or last letter before he was martyred. Um, he recognizes at this time that he just has a short time before his death. He's in Rome, and uh, we're going to see that he is uh, nearing his end of his life, and he has some very important things that he has to share with the church. He's writing to churches around, scattered around Asia Minor. These are people that he probably had contact with a number of years prior to this on the day of Pentecost, after that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Peter preached that spirit-filled message, and 3,000 were saved that day, and then most of them scattered back to their homes around Asia Minor. And so these are these churches that he probably were founded from that day. So Peter has a vested interest in these people. So today we're going to establish the importance of, of establishing the certainty of God's truth and the standard of truth that God brings to us in the Bible. Now, we know that the Bible wasn't written then. They were in the process of writing it, but they had Old Testament scriptures that were their foundation at the time, and we're going to see how important they were and they are to our faith. And I will say that studies like this, I will just give you a little, uh, little heads up. These are not the most exciting studies. <laughs> I will say that these aren't the ones that you get up and shout hallelujah and praise the Lord on, because when you're, when you're maybe I never have those, but... Um, <laughs> But this is truly an important teaching today, and it's, it's important that we understand our fundamental faiths. And, um, you know, we're building the foundation. We're building the foundation of our lives. We're building the foundation of our spiritual life. Like in anything you build, if you don't have a solid foundation, then what goes on top of the foundation um, is questionable. Questionable in its integrity, questionable in its length of time that it lasts, and just questionable in lots of areas. So I pray that, I, I pray that you stay with me as we lay the foundation of establishing the truth of God's word and the certainty of God's holy standard as the standard that we place our life on. That's what Peter was trying to do. He was preparing himself, preparing the church to stand up against the false teaching that was coming into the church already in that time. And so Peter recognizes that he must first establish the certainty of God's standard if he's going to question the standards of the false teachers. Last week, we focused on the individual. Last week, we were talking about how we make our election sure, our personal salvation, how important it is that we, we know who we are in Christ Jesus. Today, we're going to focus more on the standard of truth for the church as a whole. And obviously we need to have that if we're going to have our own personal uh, salvation. We need to understand that as well. So um, I, I just have to make the point that if this was necessary in Peter's day for Peter to go to the length of time that he's going to spend in the next number of verses in this first chapter, how much more is it important for us today? Because our culture is so far, so much further down the rat hole of hell than his was. I mean, he was only 30-some years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And we're now almost 2,000. 
how much more has the enemy had time to practice on us, develop his strategies? Only God never changes. The devil changes. He's learned. He's improved his methods and his strategies and tactics, and we need to be aware of them, and we need to be sure that we have a good foundation in who Jesus is and the Word of God. So that's why we're going here today. And I know that every culture has had its battles. I mean, you can go back to the Dark Ages. You can go back to other times in history, and every culture has had its prime problems. And even today, you go around the world and you go to some countries that are communist countries like China and, and, and uh, other areas that are communist, and the church has to be underground. And they're going through great persecution um, for their gospel. Now, we fortunately here in America aren't to that point yet. But it might come. It might come. But, but we are at a point that I believe that is just as dangerous because when we have the perceived easiness of being a Christian, it often allows us to get sloppy in our theology because we don't have anybody pressing us from the outside that we can say, well, I guess anything goes. And I don't really need to have a true foundation because there's really nothing coming against my foundation. I can just be lazy and building it. But I think that we have a very serious enemy that we don't even recognize how serious it is, and it's a hidden enemy. It's an enemy that comes from within, not necessarily comes from the outside. Uh, in Peter's, Peter's first book, the first book of Peter, he was talking about the pressure that was coming to the church from outside the church. And he was encouraging the believers of, of that day to stand strong against the persecution coming from outside the church, from the government and from the Pharisees and from the, 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 uh, the outside pressures. Four or five years later, he comes back with another letter called Second Peter, coming back to the same church. But this time, he's coming back with a more serious message because this time the enemy is coming from within the church. And that's even more dangerous. When we don't see the enemy, that's a real dangerous enemy. And that's where America's at today. We have an unseen enemy coming into America. It's not coming from Russia. It's not coming from China. It's coming from our flesh. It's coming from each individual person that we have this issue that we don't need to have God in our life because look how comfortable we are. Look how self-made we are. The American dream, it's a good dream, nothing wrong with it, but unfortunately it's taken the necessity of God out of our life until the pressures come again. What this is, this is truly a battle of truth versus untruth. And let me just say it this way, truth versus partial truth. Because partial truth is a stronger enemy than untruth. Because if somebody came and told, told you a blatant lie, you would see through that relatively quickly and you would know, I'm not going to believe that. So that doesn't have a big influence on you. But if somebody comes to you with a 
truth that looks good but isn't go but doesn't go all the way to complete truth in other words it's just a little bit shy of true truth it's called partial truth that's the one that's dangerous because it looks good at the outset and if we're shallow people which america tends to be we just want the blessings we want the quick fix we don't really we're not really concerned about what's beneath it we just want to get better real quick and we want to move on to the blessings we want to move on to the prosperity that all of a sudden we're missing the real truth that underlies and if we're if that partial truth isn't built on true truth then we're going to be left wanting in the end and i find that to be america's problem today i find that to be the problem in the american church today that we go for the partial truth that sounds good at the outset and it sounds good to hear and it we have lots of people and great programs and great music and and great buildings and you know we look really successful on the outside and it looks so good but when you get right down to it when you start talking about the real truth you find the church starting to scatter <laughs> because people really aren't interested in the real truth they just want enough to make them happy in the moment feel good when i leave that's all i care about i just want to feel good when i leave the church i don't want to be challenged i don't want to be motivated to have to go read the word i don't want to be um i, I don't want my my apple cart to be upturned at all don't rock my boat because i'm perfectly fine just make me feel good about myself and and i got to tell you that's just that's that's the it's, that's how sly the enemy is today because he's convincing christians that that's really what christianity is and Peter is finding that to be the case in the church of his day. And um, that's why he's preparing himself. Right now, he's laying the foundation. Because chapter 2 that we're going to start probably next week or the week after is really getting aggressive with false teachers. And we're going to find Peter to be darn right bold. <laughs> Come right at them. And by golly, we need to be that way. We can't be timid around this. If it's wrong, it's wrong, and we need to say it's wrong. We need to have love in our heart. We need to love people so much that we're not going to stand up for partial truths and let them take people down. We're going to be bold and say that's not a good teaching. We want to teach you the truth. And that's where Peter's starting to, 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 to move. So uh, Rip handed out a piece of paper for you that's got our scripture on it and the passages we're going to go through. But I encourage you to open your Bible, if you have a Bible with you today, to open it to Second Peter. Second Peter. And we're going to have Peter help us establish the truth of God's standard today. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Peter says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. 
We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name, and I pray right now that you would carry us along, Holy Spirit, just like you did to the prophets, the, the New Testament writers, as they wrote, you carried them along. I pray now that as we receive your word, that you carry us along, as we would understand that our eyes would be opened to what you truly are saying, that we would be a church that is ready to receive and ready to act in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter begins, as every teacher knows very well, to repeat what has been said. <laughs> I mean, teachers know that you have to repeat things more than once if it's going to be remembered, right? And uh, not only repeated once, but it's often good to come up with examples. And it's come up with other forms of communicating so that the more ways you see it or hear it or experience it, the more opportunity you're going to have of remembering it. So if something is to be taught, it has to be said more than once. And Peter is saying that to us at the beginning. So he says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, and they're already firmly established in the truth that you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. So he's not insulting their intelligence here. And neither am I. I know that we have senior saints here that know the word backwards and forwards. I know that there are people that are listening here that are just really solid in Scripture, but it's never wrong to say, I want to remind you. I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. I want to remind you of what the Bible says because it's going to encourage you because sometimes we forget, <laughs> don't we? And I will say that, you know, I think when a person is ill, for example, and I, Greg, I, I really appreciated your prayer today and Rip, thank you for being sensitive to the Holy Spirit because I believe that was God-led. Because whether you're ill or just down, you have the hardest time to pray when you're the one being inflicted, right? So somebody needs to come around you to remind you, you're going to win, brother. You're going to win, sister. The devil is not the victor at the end of the day. He's already been defeated at the cross. He's a battler. He's going to do everything he can to try to destroy, but he ultimately he's already lost. And so it's good that we're reminded that God never changes. His word is always the same forever. Never is it going to change. Never is. How can you perfect perfect? Right? How can you perfect perfect? It's already perfect. So therefore, you can't improve on it. We're not doing anything to improve on it. When we read God's word, we're not improving it because we understand it. It's perfect. We're just establishing ourselves in it. And so we can rise up to its perfection, helping us in the times that we're in. So Peter is, is really making the case here for truth versus partial truth. 
like we've already said, it's the partial truth that is really the most damaging form of truth because there's just enough there to set the hook. And then when the hook's set, it can just reel you in, and it's hard to get off that hook of untruth. We've said this before, and I'll say it again because I think it's a analogy that I understand, that to have a good defense, it's best to have a good offense. Your best defense is a good offense. You keep your offense on the field long enough, and you're probably going to win the game like Michigan State did yesterday. Yes. Go State. Upset, man. Undefeated Northwestern. I love it. Man. So that was exciting. I, I listened to that on my way home. I made my ride home from Hillsdale so much shorter because I got a good radio station and I could listen to it. And I was hooting and hollering. And I had a good old time in my car just imagining what was going on at Start Spartan Stadium. I'm a Spartan. I got to tell you, I, I went to school at Michigan State for two and a half years before I went to Michigan Tech and did other things. But, but I'm a Spartan. My, green, my blood is green. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I got to say, it's just nice to see a good victor. Now I totally forgot where I was at. I got on a rabbit trail. Welcome to Jackie's world. <laughs> I got you, Jack. But Peter was talking about, yes, here it comes. Peter was talking about to, 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 to have a great defense, you have to have a great offense. And what's the offense here? The offense is getting into God's word. The offense is understanding what God's word is and letting that become your defense. When you know truth, you can then you can spot untruth so much easier when you know the truth. But if you're not sure of what's true, then anything can be truthful, right? Man, we live in a world of relative ethics today. Morality. If it feels good, it must be okay. And you know, if it feels, thanks, Greg. If it feels good, it must be okay. That's what the world thinks. And here's the thing. You can do something the first time and it, do, it, and it feels really good, but you have a tinge of guilt after the fact. And so then you kind of put that aside. You do it again, feels great. have a little bit of tinge of guilt, put that aside. You do that enough and before long you lose the guilt. And now you're just into the feel good. And that's where our world is today for the most part. That's how they can take God's word and twist it out of context. You know, the context of a word is really important. Um, I should have brought an example. I should have brought that sheet. My, my daughter is an English teacher, and I, I saw this thing come across my email about like 20 different words in, in English that's, that you say them exactly the same thing, but they have a different meaning. For example, on our church sign, it says, now go live your faith. Now live your faith. And then it says, Live worship at 10.30. Live, L-I-V-E, live your faith, L-I-V-E, live worship. The context of a word is so important. If you take a word out of context, it can totally be misrepresented. God's word, you take God's word out of context and you can make it say whatever you want to make it say. That's how they spin doctrines. That's how false teachers get into the world. That's how, that's how, so many bad things happen because they take a portion of God's word and they, and they take it out of the context of what it was really trying to say and putting it into their context of the day that we're living in. And all of a sudden we have morality that changes with the times. If it feels good, it must be, must be good. And that's what Peter's already trying to face. So he says, 
a good offense, or a good defense is a good offense. But Peter now, he's getting into the days of his death, and he knows that his death is short. He's in Rome during the, during the reign of, of Roman Empire Nero. This is right after that um, Rome was burned, and uh, the city of Rome was burned, and they blamed the Christians for it. Now, the Christians probably had nothing to do with it, but they blamed the Christians, and so the Christians were the scapegoats. And that's the time that Paul or Peter was living in now, so he knew that his death was imminent because he just it was clear to him. So verse 14 says, Because I know that I will soon put it aside, it is his life. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort here to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember the things that I taught you, basically is what he's saying here. So, um, and I like to read the second letters of Peter and the second letters of Timothy because those are Peter's last and Paul's last letters before they die. That means that this is the most important things they want to say. <laughs> They're going to get their last, their last two cents in here before they know that their life is over. And they had an urgency to the message and therefore, it's good for us to listen to that. And I think that Peter here is also thinking of another thing when he's talking about his death, because we don't like to talk about our death, do we? No, we don't like to talk about that. But, but Peter is talking about it here, and, and I think that he's also remembering what Jesus told him about his death. If you go back, and we're going to read this in John chapter 21, this is back after Jesus was... Um, died, resurrected, um, and he came back, and, he's, and he's, he just has uh, reestablished Peter because he's, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The three questions, okay? And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter how he's going to die. John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, it says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you, and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. <laughs> and then he said, follow me. <laughs> I find that so interesting. Not, that is not a good way to win and influence friends, is to tell them that you're going to die a terrible death. And then, oh, by the way, oh, come follow me now. <laughs> I, just, I, I find that so interesting that Jesus puts those thoughts together that, Peter, I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. And to them, what this means is crucifixion. And that's the way Peter died, actually, upside down, because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. So he said, at least, if you're going to crucify me, at least crucify me upside down, because I can't be crucified the way Jesus was. But Jesus just explained that to Peter, and then he said, Peter, come follow me. You know what that says to me? Is that it's worth it to follow Jesus. Because life is not going to be easy necessarily for us. I mean, I, I can't even say that really with a straight face. Because life is very easy for me. And it's very easy for Americans. We really don't have any persecution. But for those that truly are persecuted, I, I don't want to insult them by thinking that we have it bad here because we don't. But we have to follow Jesus regardless. And so Peter is encouraged by Jesus to follow me, and I will make it worth it at the end, Peter. When you die a death that you don't want to die, I'm going to promise you, Peter, you're not going to regret your life. 
You're not going to regret a thing. And I can make you the same promise today. You follow Jesus. You put him at the center point of your life. And I promise you, you will not regret it. That's a pretty bold thing to say, isn't it? But I can say that because I know what the end of the Bible says. And I know what heaven, I can read what heaven's going to be like. And I can only imagine what eternity is going to be like for those that have accepted Jesus and have made him Lord. And I can only imagine what it's going to be for like for those that haven't and the, day, and the difference. So I will promise you that it is worth it to follow Jesus. So let's go back to our text. And Peter says that I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember that these things. These things are the things that he taught him. And what I find interesting here is that Peter is not writing his own obituary. He's not, he's not telling them, I'm, you're going to remember how great I was. He's not saying you're going to remember that I was the one that walked on water. He's not saying I was the one that preached that message and 3,000 people were saved. He's not writing his own obituary. What he's saying is, I will do everything I can so that you will remember the teachings of Jesus. You know, that is a mark of a true ministry. That's the mark of a true ministry is the one that focuses on Jesus and not themselves. Peter knows that his death is near. And rather on focusing on himself and writing about his own accomplishments, all he wants to do is make sure that they know what Jesus said. Amen. That's the kind of man I'm going to follow. That's the kind of man I hope that I am. Because every ministry comes to an end. There's going to come a day when this ministry here for me is going to come to an end. I don't know when it is. But when it is, I want people to know that I love Jesus. And I want this church to be stronger than it was when I got here. I want it to be more discipled, more disciplined. I mean, I would love it to be huge, but I can't, I don't know, it may not be huge. But I want it to be truth, and I want it to be a bearer of God's word and that alone. And I want people to know that it wasn't about me, it was about Jesus. And I want God's word to be proclaimed in his, alo in his alone. That's the ministry that I pray that I will leave this church with whenever that happens, and it may be at the rapture. I don't know. But the point here, and the point for all of us, is no matter if you're a pastor or a layman, that can be your heart as well. That when people, when people come to your funeral someday, they can say, you know what? That man or that woman loved Jesus. Isn't that what you want people to say about you? Clearly, isn't that that you want them to remember that about you more than how nice your car was, how big your home was, even how friendly you were? It's really you want them to know that man loved Jesus because that's the only thing that matters at that time. The only thing that matters. I hope that makes sense. So now Peter is beginning to move in his introduction of this chapter. He's moving now to introducing, if you will, chapter 2, because that's where we're going to start next. But he begins now to, to establish the baseline so that how can he can deal with false teachers. Remember, he's preparing the church to handle truth and to, and to handle it well. So go to verse 16 of our text. Verse, verse 16, for we, we, Peter, 
did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the, on the sacred mountain. Now, it's interesting. I find that eyewitness accounts are always good to have. You know, if you go into a court of law, they want to know, was there an eyewitness to the crime? They can have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but the circumstantial evidence, as good as it is, is not as good as an eyewitness account. Because unless you have someone that can eyewitness what happened, there's always a question. Did it happen the way the circumstantial evidence said it did? Well, Peter and John, James and John had the opportunity to see Jesus be glorified by his Father in heaven. Let's read that. Matthew chapter 17, the first five verses. He says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. <laughs> and here's good old Peter. And Peter said, Jesus, Lord, this is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. <laughs> one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Some translations say, obey him. It's more different. There's a difference between listening and obeying. I like the obey part because a listen says you can listen but not obey, but obey says you better obey. So I think we should go with the obey part. But Peter here is giving his, his eyewitness testimony of the fact that he knew who Jesus was. Jesus was the Son of God. And none of the false prophets of his day could say that. None of those who he was going to be dealing with in the next chapter had that ability to say that because he, they weren't there. But he was. But here's the important, here's the interesting part. But like all twisters of God's word or twisters of truth, that didn't stop them. Then they said, okay, well, maybe you saw that, but all these other stories you're telling, you're making them up to make you look better. You're making them up to, make, to give you the glory. So even so, the disciples, even though they had eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the false teachers were not stopping there. And they're not stopping today. It's even increasing even more. The disciples were making up their writings in a way to glorify themselves. But let's follow that logic just a little bit more. Because all the, all the disciples, besides John the Revelator, ended up dying a martyr's death. Every one of them died. Some were, some were crucified. Some were um, stoned. Some were dipped in oil, hot oil. I mean, tragic deaths. Not, none, of, none of these would be good. So let me ask the question, do you think... If they were making these stories up to glorify them, do you think they would have gone through it to the point of dying for it? I mean, w would you die for a lie? I, I'm questioning if we'll even die for the truth. 
<laughs> but I don't think we would die for a lie. And so I think that is a really good point against the false teachers of the day as well, and even today, those that would question the truth of God's word, is that all the men that had firsthand knowledge with Jesus, if it was a lie, why didn't they just deny it and live? Why did they hold to the story and then die a tragic death? So that's, a, that's big, but I think the next thing that Peter talks about is actually even more important because for us, we need to get beyond the experience of what people feel to establish truth. Because too many times we go with our feelings to determine if something's true or not. So Peter says something that is very important when he gets into, into the next verse. Let's read verse 19. He says, we also... Not only do we have my example and my experience, but now he says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let me try to paraphrase here what, what's going on in Peter. Peter is trying to say, guys, listen, I, Peter, witnessed everything I told you I witnessed. I lived with Jesus. I ate with Jesus. I saw Jesus do something that we didn't even talk about. I saw Jesus eat, drink, sleep, go to the bathroom. I mean, come on, he was human. I saw Jesus do all that, right? I experienced that for over three years. I witnessed him do miracle after miracle. I watched him raise people from the dead. I watched him heal lepers. I watched him heal demoniacs. I saw him die. I saw him come to life. I spent time with him for 40 days afterwards. After he had died and resurrected, I, I spent time with him. I ate with him even after he had died and resurrected. I heard God declare that with my own ears that Jesus was God's son and that God was well pleased with him. But he said, if that's not enough for you, I have something that is, and that is the prophet, the prophetic word of the Old Testament. And that is so important. In fact, if you look at the Bible, this passage here in Peter, this is the most de declarative, declarative word of truth of who God is and his word is right here. We're studying it right now. Because Peter said, if, I, if, if my example isn't good enough for you, and maybe it shouldn't be because it's my experience, I will tell you prophetically that the word of God is true without 100%, without any doubt. He's talking about fulfilled prophecies now. Fulfilled prophecies. Now, why would a fulfilled prophecy be more of a testimony than Peter's eyewitness account? The key word to prophecy here is fulfilled prophecy. A prophecy that is not fulfilled is no prophecy at all. And it proves the prophet is a false prophet. See, Peter is only one man living in a relatively short period of time. The New Testament was written over a hundred years span. Peter lives through most of it. 
But the Old Testament is written over thousands of years and was recorded by multiple authors hundreds of years before things ever happened. See, the Bible, if you look at the Bible, 30% of it is prophetic. Over 30% of the Bible deals with prophecy. Prophecy, in this case, is future telling of events. And we will find that every one of them, 100% of the prophecies that were given by the prophets of old came true just as they prophesied. You can't argue with that. The, the odds will not go with that. I mean, there are over 300 predictions in the Old Testament that tie Jesus to the first coming of him being born in a baby. And these were made by many different prophets. Everyone from Micah 5.2, where it talks about Jesus born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Jesus would be a direct descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7.14. You read Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53, and they described, they described the, 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 the death of Jesus on the cross like it was yesterday. <laughs> I mean, they describe it in such detail that like it already happened, and it was hundreds of years before this happened, yet the prophets were describing it like it was a 2020 account. That's how true the Bible is, that God would make every prophecy come absolutely true. So Peter goes on in verse 20. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. See, what's important here is that it's on, happening on both ends. The prophet is giving the word as God is giving it to them. When we're reading the word, it's as if God is giving it to us through the Holy Spirit. And no interpretation of God's word is private. In other words, I can't look at a scripture and say, no other man has ever interpreted the scripture like me. I'm the only man that you can listen to because I'm the only one that understands the scripture because God has given the prophecy the interpretation of it uniquely to me. No other man knows this. You see, that's just as wrong as a person giving a false prophecy to begin with. Because if it's just about me having the wisdom, that's Gnosticism. That was something that was happening at that time in the early church, and it's something that's still happening today. Look at Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, right? There is no such thing. No, the Bible is 100% does not need a book to explain it. The Holy Spirit explains it to us. And if anybody comes to you and says, I have something that is unique and I want to share, you the, I want to share the secret with you because nobody else understands this, turn around and run away as fast as you can. Get out of the presence of that man because it's a false prophet. There is no unique interpretation. You're not the only one that understands God's word. And neither am I. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, Paul says this in his second letter. Here it is. Paul's second letter to Timothy. He says, The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. It is God's way of making us well prepared at every point, fully equipped to do good. 
to everyone. That's what the Bible's for. So yes, this is building the foundation now for us to move on to the next chapter of how we deal with false prophets. Because we know the Bible to be true. 100% true. It is inerrant. It cannot make a mistake. It never changes. It is the truth of God's word. And I'm going to stand on it. And I'm going to believe it. And I'm not going to take anything else that has anything to do that would say it's not true. Amen? That's what we can stand on. And isn't it, Jack, you can come please if you'd like. And isn't it nice that we have truth in today's world that is so full of false narratives? I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about, boy, did, did God really say? <laughs> that was the first question that Satan asked Eve. Did God really say? Yes, he said it. And now it's over. I don't want to argue about it anymore. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to have you define it for me, Satan, or false teacher. No, God said it. And now our job is to accept it. Our job is to get hungry for it. Our job is to read it. Our job is to apply our heart to it. Our job is to accept it for what it is and not let anything come in that would distract us from it or discourage us from it or to give us any sense of falseness in it. I want to pray today that we would have a clear understanding and a renewed hunger for the truth of God's word. That we would, have, that we would be hungry. Listen to me. I know it's getting close to 12 o'clock and our stomach says it's getting lunchtime. I'm getting hungry. I want our spirits to be that way. I want our spirit man to be hungry. Hey, I haven't read the word yet today. I want to be hungry for the word of God. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then he goes on to some other things, but I want to stop there. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are Jesus' words. Blessed are you who thirst and hunger for the right things of God's Word. How do we know them? By reading them, by studying the Word. Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I just pray that you would just give us a hunger. Holy Spirit, I know that building a foundation is not always fun. Sometimes it takes work, actually, to dig down through the sand and get to the bedrock or to lay that large footing that's required to hold that house. And spiritually right now, Father, I'm asking you to help us lay the foundation of your word in our heart. Help us not to be distracted by thinking, oh, it always has to be fun. It always has to be fulfilling. Sometimes hard work makes me sweat. Makes me get up early in the morning. Wake up in the middle of the night. Make my priorities right. 
And I pray, God, that we would be hungry, 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 hungry. That we're not satisfied until we've gotten into your word in that particular day. We're not just taking a little quip that we read out of a little devotional and say, yep, I've got it. No, that we dig into that big piece of steak and we cut it and we slice it and we chew on it and we dwell upon it and we just let it nourish our soul. Oh, Father, I pray for that in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would glorify you. That we would see you on every page, every word, every sentence, every example, every parable, everything that's written in that word that we would see Jesus. You are the living word. You are alive in our spirits. And I just invite you here. I invite you here to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Jackie, would you lead that song for us, please? Jackie and Tom, stand with me if you will. the sweetest of love, where my heart becomes free, and my shame is undone, in your presence, Holy Spirit.
Father, now we just invite this presence to go with us today as we go our separate ways. And I pray, Father, that we, as we have our own individual Bibles time, study time this week, I pray that the Spirit would just be reminded. I pray that it would come back as a sweet fragrance to those reading, those studying. And, Lord, that this is not a message that's forgotten when you walk out the door. I pray, Father, that we chew on this through the week and we make it truly our heart's desire to be hungry and to thirst after your word, after your righteousness. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would go with your people today. Holy Spirit, you're welcome to go with us into our homes into our places of businesses this week, into our schools. Wherever we're at, we invite you with us. And we love you. And we thank you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed today. It's a good day.